This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. Where we're going, we don't need roads. Carpe diem. Seize the day, boys. Just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. Good morning, Vietnam! I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore! They call it a royale with cheese. I have always depended on the kindness of strangers. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Shaken, not stirred. They call me Mr. Tibbs. I'll have what she's having. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You make me want to be a better man. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. Go ahead. Make my day. You can't handle the truth. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. May the force be with you. To infinity and beyond. They're here. Are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? Yes, we are, because this is the greatest movie of all time podcast. Welcome back to the greatest movie of all time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. And tonight, as we predicted last week, we're discussing In the Heat of the Night, the 1967 uh, Best Picture winner. Uh, just for basic background and overview, African American police or uh, Philadelphia police detective Virgil Tibbs, played by Sidney Poitier, is arrested on suspicion of murder by Billy Gillespie, played by Rod Steiger the racist police chief of tiny Sparta, Mississippi. After Tibbs proves not only his own innocence, but that of another man, he joins forces with Gillespie to track down the real killer. Their investigation takes them through every social level of the town, with Tibbs making enemies as well as unlikely friends as he hunts for the truth. So what is your uh, relationship to this movie? Well, um, I really don't have much relationship directly to the movie. Uh, the only thing I could say is... Is, is that because you were four at the time? Yes. Okay. Uh, it also has to do... The, the best I can say is is that I grew up in a uh, in Beloit, Wisconsin, which was about third African-American. So I had some knowledge of racial issues as a child growing up, but not to this extent. Um, um, the other relationship to the movie is, is I read a book about the 1967 Oscar nominees and the making of the five films that were nominated. Okay. And so I've always wondered about this film. Yeah, to say that you had uh, less of a knowledge of race relations by comparison to this movie would be like saying, uh, I know how to play quarterback in the NFL because I watched Brett Favre do it once. No, I wouldn't go quite that far. I, I mean, mean, this is... this Beloit was was or it had ended segregation about four or five years before my memory, but we had two pools in town, and no one ever discussed the fact that one pool was for the white people and one pool was for the black people, and even though there was no signs or segregation, they were maintained 
in two different areas of town. And it was well established, even as far as I can remember, into junior high that this was the way it was supposed to be. So Yeah, Jim Crow that. wasn't exactly written down. No, but it, it existed even in the North. And I understand, know, but like, okay, so my relationship to this movie, I loved it originally the first time I saw it. And I think that was probably about three years ago. So I, I thought this was going to be a great rewatch. And the more I watch the, this movie, um, how almost surface level they give a lot of the racial tensions and do it almost no justice. I mean, this is about as whitewashed um, as you can possibly get. I mean, I think they explored better racial and so or social uh, tensions in Green Book that got crucified for that. It's just short of um, Driving Miss Daisy. You have to understand, this is 1967. This is the height of the civil rights movement. You couldn't get any more uh, deeper than this. And actually, oh, heaven and forbid! Actually, no, 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 no. Actually, have it get to a white audience. Bullshit. Okay, the same year, literally the same year. One of the other five nominees is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which does a hell of a lot more to explore actual like racial. Um, and they were in freaking New York City. Okay, but like. Other than making all of these characters to be cliche racist that are almost like um, bumpkins, uh, it's it's pretty sad. Like it's more I, layered than that. Okay, because I didn't get that at all from this version. We get to the best. Uh, Most uh, of the racial tension is. I would I will be able to articulate why there's more subtlety there than that. I didn't get almost any subtlety at all. Like, all of the racial tensions seem to be surface level at best. Like, the overall contempt that seemingly everybody had within the film for everybody else. Like, That's, uh, as far as I can, uh, I've been, as far as it's been described to me, that was Mississippi in 1967. Okay, it wasn't I'm just saying, the, in almost every scene, the only acting or emotion that seems to be boiling uh, under the surface, so so to say, is genuine contempt for whomever they're acting across from. And I don't care whether that's Tibbs and Gillespie or uh, Tibbs and Endicott or uh, just about everything else. No, there's also there's more to it than that. It's not just contempt. There is a boiling how to put it? There okay. is an intertension of everybody, of every character in this film, of what they are told they have to believe and how they should behave and what they are really deep down thinking and feeling. Okay. There, there is a multiple times in this film where they've come to respect Tibbs, but they can't say it. You have to treat him with disrespect or you're ostracized from your society. I, I'm sorry. I, I just, I didn't get that at all. 
But all right. So what's your version of what this movie is about in 15 words or less? Sherlock Holmes uh, gets beat up by a bunch of racists. Um, okay. Yours is extremely different from mine, but uh, black Philadelphia cop forces Mississippi police force to actually investigate a homicide thoroughly. Okay. Like I, I, I can, the, I mean, that's a basic synopsis, but this is really two movies in its, in and of itself. It's the it's the solving of a homicide by a trained uh, expert in crime. Yes, placed doing... in the middle of a racially charged situation. So that's actually a better synopsis than the one you gave them. Okay, because this guy's not Sherlock Holmes. He's not. He's he using quotes. no. He's like... using techniques and observation and deduction in order to achieve his uh, resolution of the crime. He's using modern police science, whereas they jump to every um, conclusion that seems to be the easy one to take it out. And that's why I said it, they're actually forced to investigate a homicide thoroughly instead of just literally going for the low-hanging fruit, which they seem to do four or five times. You keep talking about low-hanging fruit, but yet you're the one who does who's grasping at low-hanging fruit. Sherlock Holmes is nothing more than Sherlock Holmes was using modern police science in a time period where there was no modern police science. So it seemed like magic. That's the First whole up, point. Yes, but there was also a personality type. This has nothing of that. He's as bumbling sometimes, whereas like Holmes is perceived as some... Um, super heroic foe that, uh, or, uh, that um, seemingly can solve any crime if given the amount of time. I can tell you right now that if you were a black person in 1967, Tibbs was a heroic character in your opinion. So first off, this movie is based on a, a series of books. Um, so it, it uh, is an adapted work. And was eventually turned into a TV show in the 80s. Um, With so, Carol O'Connor. Yes. So, like, there is some of that. But the minute I read that, I'm like, most of this movie plays out like a uh, pilot episode of a bad procedural drama. I think you're getting way... You, I'm sorry, that's where I sat. It, yeah, you're beating this way too I'm, much. No, I'm going to thoroughly strip this one apart because to me, this this thing is uh, maybe at the time it would have been better, but like it is not at all what I remembered it to be. The acting is thin. Um, the the stuff is any of the emotions are well overdone. I don't know how the hell uh, Rod Steiger got nominated for best actor, let alone win it. Um Especially when you consider um, uh, Spencer Tracy's performance and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Well, and not to mention the fact that uh, most of the plotting seems kind of, um, I don't know, hollow? Like, it, it's about the worst police work of anybody I've ever seen outside of Tibbs. Like, 
Tibbs is um, Tibbs would be like a uh, regular um, staff person from any other presidential administration walking into the Trump administration. He brings a level of actual common sense uh, and uh, administrative background to a place that has absolutely none of them. Okay. I guess I don't understand your point in reference, but all right. Whatever. Anyway, all right. So moving down the uh, list of potential categories. So best performance. Poitier. I can't, I can't understand why Rod Steiger won best actor for this. I can't either. I thought Poitier was better because his is at least a little bit more nuanced where um, he's at least going up and down. Basically, Steiger's mad at somebody throughout the entire movie um, from jumping from one to the next. And when he does um, actually get to a point where he tries or, or provides some level of empathy or some sort of humanity, he has to immediately uh, recharge himself into some sort of racial epithet. Yeah. So uh, who is your best minor performance? Warren Oates. This is going to be weird because I had the exact same one. Yeah, because Warren Oates, Warren Oates is a classic example of a guy who doesn't understand why he hates based on race. He doesn't he doesn't understand it. And but when the minute he gets an opportunity to to buy into somebody who's uh, it like Tibbs, he does. And he goes overboard to the point where people are looking at him like, what the hell is he doing? You know, when I'm watching this film, I'm going, wow, Warren Oates in 1967 was what Sam Rockwell was to nine billboards a couple of years ago. Yeah, that's that's so, pretty apt. Except the only thing is, is they did with Sam Rockwell what they couldn't do with Warren Oates is put him over the top. Well, I think they gave Rockwell a little bit more uh, expansion with his storyline, where this character is a little bit more... Um, the, the relationship between him and Tibbs is not as um, grand as Tibbs and, well, um, Gillespie. But uh, I, I just... I, I thought he was... Um, the He's kind of like the Barney Fife character. He's just likable, and he didn't have to do a whole lot to be uh, likable other than just be a good personality. Um, you know, for uh, a few people that may or also not know who he is, I mean, his, some of his other work included The Wild Bunch and Stripes, um, so you're Sergeant Holka fans. Um, but, uh, you know... Wasn't he in... I'm trying to remember what else he was in. Wasn't he in? He wasn't in a whole lot. I mean, you can look up his IMDb page once. I tried to, and there weren't a whole lot of things that I recognized. He had a long kind of character actor career, but, you know, honestly, I think some of those are the better actors anyway. So. Uh, All right. Who do you have for your most charismatic award? Um, probably Poitier. Yeah, I think so, too. presence on the screen, no matter what he did. Well, I think it's, you're you're drawn into his um, ability to be powerful in a position where 
he should be anything but powerful. And, you know, even the way he engaged um, some of the, the, I guess, prisoners, if you will, um, back in the jail cells, he, he just seems likable for uh, a guy that uh, shouldn't be showing a lot of personality. I mean, this is one of the few times that um, a black character is really given the ability to show a level of personality, at least in the 60s, if not for that. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I mean, he just had a presence. And I think he's to still, to some extent, he still has a presence. He He's really kind of, um, he, he, I don't want to say this to be, to diminish, but almost like the Jackie Robinson of film. Um, he just had a presence. He, he. He exemplified a level of class that you had a hard time. Um, I'm sure if you were bigoted, even well, he, I, he, I, could, he could transcend stuff. I, I can't imagine too many other black actors in 1967 who could have come across and presented uh, that character in uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and done it believably. So, like, for... Some of the younger generation or any of our overseas people, uh, we are recording this on April 15th, um, which is Jackie Robinson Day. And at least for people of my generation, I'm almost 30, like Jackie Robinson really only means one thing. We don't know him as a character or as a personality, so the the connection is a little lost. We really only know him for the color barrier aspect and kind of like as a milestone type figure as opposed to the things that he did. And I do know that like Chadwick Boseman portrayed him in a movie a few years ago that uh, was at least uh, mildly popular, but uh, for the recognition of it, I, I think you'd have to explain a little bit more the context of what you mean by that. Well, when you're in a situation where it's, it's charged, people are looking for a reason to uh, dislike you. And when you're in a position where you, you know, he could come across as being um, arrogant or whatever. He, he had a diff, it was a difficult way of presenting himself that anybody would dislike him. He didn't come across as being a know-it-all. He didn't come across as being somebody who was in your face about stuff. Um, I think back to my youth in the early 70s when this was still boiling over and there was still busing and, and desegregation and race riots going on. Um, you know, Redlining. Mohammed, yeah, well, don't even get me started there because that was going on even into the late 70s in Janesville, just north of where I grew up. No, the, and the difference, that was why Muhammad Ali was so disliked by a large portion of white America was because he was loud and obnoxious and in your face. And a lot of people were just looking for a reason other than being African-American to dislike you. And Poitier had a knack or a way of doing it that he just never was like that. Um, 
I do want to note that he did win his uh, Best um, Actor Oscar before this uh, in 63 um, for a movie I hadn't heard of. So, um, But given that um, and not even being uh, named, I mean, that's not shocking. I mean, uh, he was only the second um, black actor to win Best uh, or some type of acting award um, since I think that was, what, 1938? Was Gone with the Wind? 39. 39? 39. Uh, yep. A movie, of course, we're eventually going to be covering. So, um, but, uh, <sighs> I, I mean, <laughs> okay, yes. We are eventually going to cover the longest movie in Best Picture history. But anyway. That, that was also boring because it's nothing more than a three-hour um justification for the South's position in the Civil War. Well, I suppose, given uh, the last few years, that might actually still have some interest to a few people. Uh, all right, so best scene. Um, I love the, the charge where, uh, and that's also my vote for best line, they call me Mr. Tibbs. Yeah, That's I think me a defining moment of the film. Yeah, I had that as best line. Uh, I'll just kind of give some more of the context. You know, well, you're pretty sure of yourself, ain't you, Virgil? Virgil, that's a funny name for a N-word boy that comes from Philadelphia. They do call you up there. Or uh, what do they call you up there? They call me Mr. Tibbs. You know, and the um, <laughs> trying to do the, the small stuff to create the power dynamic. I mean, this entire movie, I'll give it some credit in that the only relationship that seemingly works is the one between the two of them where they're constantly struggling for who's the more knowledgeable and who's the one in power. Okay, your problem with this is, is you're comparing this in 1967 to where racially uh, influenced movies are presently. I will compare this as far as uh, CGI to Star Wars in 1977 and compare it to Star Wars now. The difference in the CGI is the difference between the way you could present race relations in 1967 to where it is now. But you have to give it against the backdrop of the last few years where we're having... um a white nationalist rally in the middle of the country. Like, it's hard not to bring that stuff in. And everything is judged by the history of everything as it's looked upon. You're always changing lenses. I understand. And I am giving it a little bit of a um, tilt to that. However, this, you know, in hindsight, is behind other movies that I find a little bit better um, fitting toward at least covering some of these subjects. Okay, so it's a little dated. But I can tell you right now, I will guarantee, I don't know this, I didn't look it up, but I will guarantee this film did not show in the state of Mississippi. That was probably a pretty comfortable bet. But then again, like, you know, you didn't have a lot of these movies showing until, like, the early 2000s. So I'm not... Those that want to shut off their uh, minds to um, new ideas are only destined um, to have history repeat itself. But, okay. 
anyway, uh, for me, best scene was kind of the introduction of Virgil Tibbs. Um, that scene where he's just waiting for the train and um, Sam Wood uh, or Deputy Sam Wood comes in and um, just simply notices him and he can arrest him and um, take him in. And that whole thing where they kind of introduce you to the power dynamic between Gillespie and uh, Tibbs. I, that that whole sequence of how it kind of plays out um, to me is probably some of the best work of this movie where it's really setting up that dynamic of uh, where it was going to go and where the premise lied. So, uh, favorite scene? Um, I, I, I really like the, the uh, climactic ending um, because, of course... They're uh, they're they're all ganging up to get him simply because of race. But when he points out that the uh, chicanery and the deceit that's existing, all of a sudden they turn on themselves. See, and I thought that was kind of uh, you know the original way that I saw it when I I first saw this movie is a lot different than I saw it now. And we'll come back to that because that's my nominee for most indelible moment. But um, So my favorite scene also happens to be close to my funniest line nominee. So uh, <laughs> setting the scene, middle of the movie, uh, one of the big wigs in town or the guy that existed before the guy that gets murdered um, ends up uh, uh, being the series of or the uh, uh, spotlight of investigation by Tibbs. So, losing his composure, Endicott slaps Tibbs across the face. Tibbs slaps Endicott right back, visibly shocking him. Endicott, Gillespie, Gillespie, yeah. Endicott, you saw it. Gillespie, I saw it. Endicott, well, what you gonna do about it? Gillespie, I don't know. Endicott, I'll remember that. To Tibbs, there was a time when I could have had you shot. Like, how much more... Like that—that's that, almost cringeworthy with how they're making the stark difference. Like, throw it in our face a little bit more. Give us some more nuance and subtlety than ah. Uh, about five years ago, I could have had you shot. You have guys trying to lynch him at the end of the movie. Like, come on! You could have had him shot then. I know. So because. Like, but what, what, we're, when, we're, when, we're supposedly more educated now, yeah, so what, I can what, slap what you, an officer of the law, and think that I can not only A, get away with it, but B, um, then get you arrested? Like, what the hell? Well, think about it, that the, um, that the uh, investigation of the murders of the civil rights activists in Mississippi... That was the basis of the movie Mississippi Burning. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think offhand when that happened. Uh, I think it was only a few years before. Yeah, I think it was uh, 63 or 64. S summer a of movie we, it was A, a summer movie we should be eventually covering, to be fair. I think that is um, uh, actually a fairly good movie. Yeah, it was a summer of 63. Because that so, was when yeah. they were they were trying to get people signed up um, for and the Voter Rights Act was in right play. Freedom Summer. So, yeah, 
But I mean, that's about where it was. I mean, it was almost like calling it or saying, well, see, we've improved. I can't just at or tell you to be shot. I have to actually. The, the, (laughs) um, arrogance of not only, uh, I'm going to slap you and then be shocked when you slap back, even though you're an officer of the law and it's a crime to have assaulted you. Like, but not only am I going to have the arrogance that I can get away with it, but then because you retaliated, you are supposed to be the one that gets arrested in the town. Like, how much arrogance and power do you think you have just because you're simply white? And to me, that's why it's the funniest line of the entire movie. Because not only is it hollow because of how the movie plays out, but it's also, uh, frankly, ridiculous. Like, there would have been more subtlety to that whole scene. This is them trying to play, like, Bigot 101 and just some bad writing, if you ask me. Uh, you're, you have to put it in the context uh, of the time. Okay. So, anyway, uh, was uh, your nominee for Best Line, was that also They Call Me Mr. Tibbs? Yes. All right, so that was my favorite. We'll skip down. Did you have an honorable mention? I do. For line? Yeah. Uh, no, I actually didn't. I can't think of, or couldn't think of one that I really thought, oh, uh, yeah, this is. So I just have kind of more of a um, summation type of line, and it's kind of the one I would say, if anything, that um, Steiger probably won his Oscar for, uh, if you had to give me one. But So uh, Gillespie, boy, it would give me a world of satisfaction to horse with you, Virgil. Tibbs laughing. My father used to say that. He even did a couple of times. Gillespie. Yeah, well, not enough to suit me. Now you listen to me. Just for once in my life, I'm going to hold my temper. I'm telling you, you're going to stay here. You're going to stay here if I have to go inside and call your chief of police and have him remind him of what you told me to do. But I don't think I have to do that. You see, no, because you're so damn smart. You're smarter than any white man. You just stay here and show us all. You've got such a big head, you can never live with yourself unless you put us all to shame. You want to know something, Virgil? I don't think you could let an opportunity like that pass by. Yeah. And, I, you know, I've always been, I've gravitated as long as we've done this, The you know, we're not even 10 weeks in, but um, towards the summation lines. To me, that's the, like, what this movie is about. You know, if anything else, Tibbs only does it um, to prove he can be as good, if not better, than any white cop. Which, it's a low bar here, but still. Yeah. So, did you have a nominee for Funniest Line? I already gave mine. No, I really don't. The the only thing I could point out is, is the the cafe uh, uh, guy in the pie it was kind of cute, but there was really not that much. Well, I think it's more or less setting up kind of the ending and the reveal. Um, so uh, not to completely spoil it, but that does have a, a measure of coming back around at the end of this movie. So uh, I, so as I kind of pre-teased it's a already. Six, it's a 52-year-old film. If you haven't seen it by now, 
I'm sorry, but I'm ruining the ending. Well, that's why we do the disclaimer at the top, you know, that there may be spoilers. But I do like to occasionally allow people the space to go and watch the movie themselves, even though, you know, for the most part, we encourage you to watch these ahead of time with us or have seen the movie so that we you understand a little bit more of what we're talking about. Or there's this button on your uh, on your iPod, your phone, your computer. It's called pause. Pause, watch the film, and then come back. Thank you for, you know, uh, mansplaining to the entire audience, but okay. I'm not anyway. mansplaining. I'm an old fart who's talking technology because there aren't people my age that are spending time listening to podcasts that much. Yeah, I understand. So I'm talking to all you young whippersnappers. Yeah, I'm actually surprised that you even know how to get a podcast. So anyway, uh, so uh, leading up ahead already, I kind of told you my most indelible moment, and it's probably the ending, um, just kind of the reveal and the rest of it, because at the end of this, the core of um, the setup and the premise and how they conduct the movie is, it's a whodunit. Um, you know, the reveal at the end that it was none of the people that we've been led to believe throughout the whole thing. It's none of the easy red herrings. It's not Sam Wood. It's not the other drifter that they found. It's not Virgil Tibbs. Uh, it's not even Endicott or anybody else, but it's another, um, you know, guy who got the sister pregnant, and then they're trying to pa- or pan it off as uh, the guy who um, ran the or was trying to build the factory in town. I mean, honestly, there are I, there are much smarter or better like whodunit murder plots. This one seems to me like probably one of the stupidest homicides I've ever seen. And the fact that it took them this long to figure it out is kind of uh, ridiculous in itself. Although the reveal does still give you a little bit of uh, uh, pause if you haven't seen it before. I do think it is at least a little bit uh, better than average. Yeah, I would agree. I I, I didn't mind it. I uh, Again... <laughs> You're you're trying to read a lot more sophistication in than what was in existence in 1967. Again, I think you look at things with a different eye when you're watching a film that you already know the ending and the plot. And I mean, that's that's been true of comments like uh, I know that Adam McKay and Will Ferrell have said that they actually think or they uh, know people actually think their movies are funnier the second time around because you're not paying attention to the plot you're paying attention to all the side jokes in the same way this movie plays a lot differently if you're watching it the first time as opposed to watching it the second or third time where you're looking for some of the other things like i i think if this simply just plays out as a whodunit thing and you don't know the ending i think this is a much different movie than if you're looking for all the subtleties and Uh, the other things, and some of the stuff that doesn't play well. Um, You know, for me, like, some of the fight sequences and the choreography was extremely distracting. The the, uh, fight in that, like, abandoned factory or whatever the hell it was, like, some of the camera angles on that, I turned to Sarah while we were watching the movie here in quarantine, and I'm like, is this um, a Best Picture winner or the Batman TV show? The only thing they were missing was Bam and Pow! uh okay sure well i mean they just had such weird camera angles they were trying to like 
film it off center and like turn it and wrote it would just made no sense like you're trying to do a serious drama work and you're presenting this guy like he's the freaking riddler yeah but i mean remember what else was nominated that year so well that's what i'm getting to is is that i think you know we're gonna get around unless you want to start that conversation now i'm looking through it and honestly the um 40th Academy Awards from 67. Like, the fact that this won Best Picture uh, is rather ridiculous to me. All right. Here are some of the other films from that year. Cool Hand Luke, a film we'll be covering. Which was not nominated. No, it was not. In Cold Blood. Which was not nominated. Correct. The Dirty Dozen, which we'll be covering in a few weeks. Which was not nominated. Correct. Now, here's are just the ones that were actually nominated. All right? Uh, guess who's coming to dinner, which we've already talked about. Yes, good film. The Graduate. Funny film for its time. It's dated. Dr. Doolittle. Wow. What can I say? The one film that Eddie Murphy did that is uh, as as a remake that actually is probably better than the original. Uh, and Bonnie and Clyde. Which I still have no idea why that film is so popular. Well, I watched it and I liked it, but, and frankly, I think this is a better film than that. But, like, you have to think, in the pantheon of uh, Hollywood years, this is probably one of the best years of uh, films that they've had. Like, to have that many classics in one single calendar year. Actually, I think Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is the best film, and I would actually probably say The Dirty Dozen would be second, in my opinion. Well, I'm not, I honestly, I don't disagree with it, although I still haven't seen The Dirty Dozen, so when we watch it for a couple of weeks from now, that'll be my actual first time. But Actually, actually, I already know from, I've watched The Dirty Dozen enough times that um, I already know who my, um, uh, best minor performances from. So, okay. well, I mean, I've been catching up on some other films here and there. Know who I'm talking about? But he was a longtime character actor. Well, that's fine. So, but uh, you know, this this movie ended up winning um, best actor, best picture. Um, it ended up with uh, nominated for best director and sound editing. One for adapted screenplay and editing and sound mixing. Um, I do want to make note that just off the top that uh, I thought it was interesting that um, Quincy Jones did the soundtrack for this movie, which I yeah. thought was kind of cool. And, you know, the the um, theme song, if you will, by Ray Charles was actually a decent song. So yeah. I, I the fact that they kind of really went out on a limb to... Uh, get two black musicians to really soundtrack this and it had some level of notoriety, uh, I do think is significant, at least historically. I don't know. Some of the soundtrack is a little dated and didn't hold up for me, um, but, you know, oh well. Yeah, but both, both musicians were, black musicians were high, or extremely popular among, or in the black community at the time, but who had crossover influence or importance. So... I guess that leaves us pretty much down to um, just uh, the uh, categories themselves. Um, 
So I think I mean, we're it's clearly going to... I wanted to mention this because I, I happened to look up Norman Jewison's um, uh, IMBD page and didn't realize some of the films he did. This doesn't even rank in the top five of his films. Okay. Um, Send Me No Flowers, okay, which is kind of a romantic comedy. It's one of the early ones. The Russians are coming. The Russians are coming with uh, Alan Arkin, which was one of his first major films. The Thomas Crown Affair with uh, um, uh, Steve um, McQueen. McQueen. Fiddler on the Roof. Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, Agnes of God, which is, I think, the last film that um, Anne Bancroft uh, did Moonstruck, which was Shear's um, big or Academy Award winner. So I'm looking at this going, wow, this guy's had had a huge career. And this film was good, but I mean, I like well, some of the others much better. To be fair, um, uh, other than Fiddler, this is the only other movie of his I've seen. Okay. So I'm sure some of those will make a rebound or uh, appearance at some other point in time. But, um, okay. I, I I really can't add much to your list. So, but I think clearly you and I are going to wildly disagree. And I might be a little bit malleable on some of these. I tried to be a little bit uh, fair based on where I was coming from and not um, put it somehow if I was becoming a little bit more emotional with it, but so talk me into your legacy score. Um, I would say an eight. And the reason I would go eight is, is it was one of multiple films that presented the, uh, story of, of integration and racism it was not the only one. Uh, I mean, the fact that Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is it the same year um, kind of uh, reduces the overall impact. But it had a huge, it had a huge impact because when you were up in the north, for example, until TV started covering uh, school integration and some of the riots that were taking place in those places. It was not known. You did not understand what was going on in the South to some extent as a African-American. The fact that Poitier is in the train station and uh, gets arrested and never says, why are you arresting me? What did I do? Anything at all to to argue with uh, Warren Oates shows this is exactly the way things were in Mississippi in 1967. You didn't dare even try to question because you would have gotten your butt kicked. Well, I think some of this is informed by, you know, more recent um, race relation issues with uh, the police and everything else that, um, there's still a part of black experience that you and I will never have a full understanding of, you know, where we're getting black lives matter and the rest of this, 
um, in relation to how they're arrested and if they even question it. And that that's regardless of location. Um, we're getting it literally all over the country at any given time. So, yes, I, I do think that that does play differently, and that is still somewhat shocking, um, particularly for uh, those uh, that are seeing this kind of for the first time type of situation. And I uh, see there were a lot of people in the Midwest and even in places in the uh, uh, New England area and such outside of the major urban areas that this is the first time they were exposed to this kind of behavior. They heard about it, but they had never seen it. But see, those to me are more arguments for uh, the novelty category or maybe even impact and significance than it is legacy. Like, I, think I don't think you eyes. I think it opened eyes. There's a reason why these films came out in 67 and then we had huge inroads going into 68, culminating in the assassination of uh, Malcolm X and then Martin Luther King. And things started to really shift in the late 60s, early 70s. Well, I do think that this is an interesting time that like it has a historical impact at the time, but legacy has to do with its long tail. To me, the legacy arguments are that um, there are several movies to me that don't end up um, being made or aren't quite the same. This is the first one where it's like, honestly, Lethal Weapon is not made without this movie. Correct. Like, it, it, it's kind of the same dynamic. It's the buddy cop type of situation. They do a little bit different with the role dynamics. Obviously, Danny Glover's the more experienced cop and whatever else where, you know, the, um, obviously, or Mel Gibson is the more young renegade type, but even so, like the, the notion of that doesn't get made without this. I also don't think something like green book gets made without something like this coming well before it. Um, you know, as at least a backdrop or that we have some cultural uh, relevance with, you know, the buddy, or the interracial buddy storyline type of thing. Even though, like, there's more of understanding that they're than they're actually friends by the end of the movie, I think, um, you know, there there is something of that. And the fact that this was made into a TV show, you know, some 15, 20 years later, uh, I do think has more of a legacy piece. But I still don't see this as like something that people are talking about or making a big deal about in the same way that um, they're talking about some of the other movies um, of this era or even a few years later than this. Um, maybe that has and I'm not necessarily talking about it as like a racial thing. Like, I think that some people or at least the film and aficionados um, would know this movie immediately upon um reference point but like the general public are certainly not talking about this um as one of those classic legacy films well no and because part of it is, is the the uh the uh subject matter in this film is something that especially white america doesn't like to think about it's like wearing sandpaper underwear you, you just don't want to deal with it so I actually had it as a six, and I I still think that that's pretty comfortable. Um, right. I, I I would agree. I I actually had six point five, but I'll go with your six. 
I thought you said you had an eight. Excuse me. What, what did I miss? You changing categories? No, you legacy. Legacy? No, I. All right, I'm sorry. I was thinking of a different category. No, yeah, I have it as an eight. Yeah, legacy is always number or the top one. I had that as a six. Well, do you want to compromise and go seven? Well, I figured that was the only way we were going to settle it. But so, what did you have a six point five? The dad card and say you're going to agree with me. Yeah, but I'm the host and the producer and the writer of this podcast. So fuck you. Oh, there's so much writing. I again, fuck you. Anyway. <laughs> no, that's not how it works. But anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so which one did you have 6.5 for then? Um, I, I had 6.5 for... And why am I drawing a blank? What's the other categories? I'm just like so. Adding. So number two is impact, significance. Three, novelty. Four, classicness. Impact and significance, because okay. I think in the long run, so, it, only, it had a it had a very short life. Uh, shelf well, life. I actually would argue it the opposite way, and I actually had a seven on this one. I think it was impactful um, in that it at least opened a few doors. It wasn't in the same way, and I don't think it has the same tail that, like, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner does, but uh, well, where I think about, that one's a little bit more classic. Okay, but, but you, have to, you have to put it in context, all right? 1965, the first television show to star a black actor. Now, I understand that when I mention this name, there's going to be a large degree of revulsion, but you have to put it in context. I spy... With Robert Culp and Bill Cosby. Yeah. And that got huge criticism. Network TV stations down south would not even show the film, the show, because how dare you put a black man and a white man working together and being friends on television? But I I do think that. Portier won his best or picture nominee in 63. There were a lot of other things that were going on. This is just one piece of the pie moving the the interrogation. Boy, I'm having a hard time. Um, Yeah, and I'm drawing a blank on the word. Um, Integration? Integration uh, uh, idea or concept or situation forward. So that's so, why I gave it a 6.5. I will come down, but I might even argue after that argument that it actually is a 6. Because if you're saying, other than the fact that it won Best Picture in a year where there were a lot of good movies, or classic movies, um, you know, and that this doesn't do a whole lot, it's just one piece of the context, I don't know if it deserves a whole lot more than the 6. Well, and you think about this. Laugh-In came on NBC in uh, early 1968, and one of the classic uh, contributors was Sammy Davis Jr. with Here Come the Judge, Here Come the Judge, um, was huge. And so this was already starting. This just kind of almost fell on the tail end of some of this stuff that was going on uh, in 
in in movies and television. Television almost was more revolutionary in how it handled African Americans than movies were. Well, and I'll say that uh, continued up through uh, the eighties and nineties. Frankly, you know the the Cosby Show was much bigger than any one single <laughs> black actor through the eighties, and it wasn't in really until the um, late eighties, early nineties that you really started to get the push of like the black movie star with Denzel and Morgan Freeman. Yeah. So, I just have one comment to make: is that Bill Cosby, you were a dumbass. You could have been an icon, and now you're a fucking moron. Yeah, I think that's a lot more nuanced conversation than just simply that. Where I like, understand, but he this like, is a time this is a time where Bill Cosby I, should be honored instead of being vilified because of what he went through and what he did early in his career. The fact that his personal life was just so abysmal in the way it was treated. No, this is just ridiculous. Literally, what an, what an literally, ass. you and I do not have um, the background or context or uh, experience to talk about Bill Cosby and the way he needs to be properly handled. And that's probably an hour and a half long conversation minimum to really get all of the nuance of who he was. And I really don't think we have time to really be picking that apart unless you simply want to do the Larry Wilmore and just say, fuck you, Bill Cosby. Like let, let, let's not dip our toe there, please. All right, fine. Let's keep going. So, all right. Uh, now, as far as that, I actually, now that, uh, you, uh, mentioned some of your impact significance pieces, uh, I would bump down. Originally I gave novelty an eight on this movie, but if this is kind of, um, Hollywood catching up. I don't know if it has the same level of um, novelty. I gave it a seven because of the fact that yeah, at least I, it presented uh, the Deep South in a way that the North had not experienced. All right, so I can move down to a seven. And I think we've kind of already discussed a lot of this. I mean, it was novel that they were discussing some of these things and portraying them, but it certainly was not like the um, most novel thing that they were doing at the time by any stretch, or it did not come first. It has really no, it wasn't breaking a lot of new territory other than that. It was the first significant movie of its time um, really getting recognized. So, um, but so we have to give it a little bit of credence for that. But uh, what did you have down for classicness? Um, I have down a six. So, I actually head down a four, and I, I don't think that comes as a surprise to anybody that's possibly been listening to this point, but, like, a lot of parts of this movie didn't age well. Um, I think the racism is caricaturized and shallow. Uh, I think some of the acting is kind of poor. Um, I think the camera work is, like, not only dated, but just bad. Um and even some of the editing, like there's some spots in this movie where like you can clearly see some bad editing where they just could not find the clips to string together to make it seem more seamless. So I, I, I had it at a four. I think this might be my lowest classicness score right now. Like, and I, I certainly don't want to like just completely 
shit all over it, but, like, come on. Uh, you're too much. I mean, there's a certain element here. Uh, so what are you comfortable compromising on, then? Five and a half? Fine. I said my piece, and we'll we'll go with it. But So rewatchability. I really didn't have a problem rewatching it, other than the fact of all of the issues I started to pick apart the movie, and it became a little bit more uh, drudgery at times for me as it was going along. It just wasn't as enjoyable as the first time through. So that, to me, I don't know if this is one that I would be revisiting a lot, to be honest. No. Um, I had a six and a half. I remember watching a piece of this back in the mid-70s. I used to watch a lot of, uh, they used to have weekly movies, you know, on, on network TV where they would show a movie an older movie um, because it was cheaper to do that than to, to do TV programs. And so, but I would sit and watch these with my dad who was a big movie buff. I remember watching at least part of this and then we watched it together when I was going through and watching all of the 1965 or seven films that won or nominated for best picture based on this book that I had just read. Um, and to be honest, every time I've watched the film, I had a hard time remembering what it was. So the mem- or the, the memorableness of this film is minimal to me. All right. So what did you have down for rewatchability? I, I already said it, but I had a six and a half. I think you're probably high. I think I had about a five and a half because. All right. We'll settle on six. Sit down and go, oh, wow. Heat of the night. I think I got to watch this. Ooh, I got to get up early in the morning. Well, it'll get over by midnight. Okay, but you're okay, not doing that with watched. any movie regardless. There are very few where you're like, oh, this is on. Like, <laughs> if that's your standard, we, we have about 12 films, maybe. <sighs> so, hey. uh, all right. So the last one is, is that this had an audience score of uh, 92%. Translates to 9.2 points, so um, put that in context. So that gives it a total score of 40.7. I believe that comes in at, if not the bottom, I think at the um, very base of the um, picture list at the moment. Does any of that surprise you? No, not really. I would give a special kudos to the guy who played the body. The body? Oh. Very good <laughs> Okay, it took me a second for that to register. He had to present himself as really dead in the street when Warren Oates found him. And then when he's on the table in the mortuary, he really did a nice job of playing dead. Okay. Uh, yeah, some so of, it comes of, in as... Uh, best actors started out playing dead people. Well, that's, well, that's true. true. The, Kevin Costner. Uh, who? Who? Kevin Costner. Oh, 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 okay, okay. I didn't see it opens second. in the Big Chill, where they're doing the the they're putting together the 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 suit and everything in the casket for the funeral. That's yeah. Kevin yeah. Costner. He had scenes that were supposed to be presenting him in the film early on, but they cut him, and so the only thing that was left was him being dressed in his coffin for the funeral. 
So, but that's yeah. Kevin yeah. Costner. No, no, that's that's fine. I even Daisy Ridley, who's now um, the or was the latest uh, primary character of Star Wars, uh, started off as a cadaver. So, you know, I I, I get your point. But uh, this does actually come in just ahead of uh, Inglorious Bastards at number seven on our list. So, um, any uh, other? M- Final thoughts. Uh, I don't think I see this one as a top 100 film when we're done. Um, it's it's a classic film that we needed to cover, obviously, but uh, I don't see it much past that. No. No. And I've seen it now at least twice completely, probably two and a half times. And it's not going to be on my list. I may very well die before I'll see it again. All right. So, um, but that was our, uh, review on In the Heat of the Night. Um, we're covering a much different film, uh, next week. So, uh, next week we have David O. Russell's, uh, Silver Linings Playbook, um, oh. which is actually within the last 10 years. Uh, it's the movie Jennifer Lawrence famously won her best actress for, um, and, uh, stars also, uh, Robert De Niro and, um, why am I drawing a blank on his name? Um, you mean Bradley Cooper? Yeah, Brad Cooper. Uh, that's that's terrible of me because I love Brad Cooper. But um, so uh, currently that movie is on Netflix. If anybody wants to uh, watch that one, I think it's been on there most times uh, anyway. But um, just uh, to keep up with us and um, watch before next week's podcast. So um, thanks to everybody um, again. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Um, we, uh, if you, uh, leave us a five-star rating, maybe, um, I don't know, we'll start doing something if we can get some audience share, some special prizes or whatever, um, co-hosting spot. Uh, although I guess, you know, right now I think just about anybody coming on and co-hosting would be fair and accurate. I know there are a few movies I have, uh, potentially working on with a few other people so that you don't have to watch them like Mary Poppins and Back to the Future. I like Back to the Future, and I liked Mary Poppins, but, oh. you know. Well, I think Mom potentially volunteered for the, um, uh, what is it, uh, Breakfast Club episode, and I think Sarah did, too. Oh, yeah. Well, your mother your mother was very stereotypical in the early 80s. Uh, so was literally everybody else, because it's still one of the most popular movies of the 80s. You are the um, rare exception. The unique. Of course I am. When 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 everybody else wore tie dye and let their hair grow, I cut my hair short and wore a tie to class every day. Simply yeah. because I w- and then when things changed and it went the other way and people were wearing ties and trying to look yuppie, I went and let my hair grow and grew a beard because screw them. Yeah, and that really creepy pervert uh, mustache that you had, but <laughs> that's for a different time. Anyway, yeah, that uh, mustache was cool. Yeah, said nobody ever. Anyway, uh, your lip caterpillar does not age well. So um, join us next week, and uh, we'll see you then. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. After all, tomorrow is another day. 
As always, please subscribe, rate, and comment on the show from wherever you get your podcasts. It will help everyone else find the show and share in the fun. If you would like to suggest a movie we should review or potentially guest star on one of the episodes, please follow either Dana or I on Twitter uh, at TJ3Duncan or at Dana W. Duncan.